0: What? Brian! Brian what? Brian, Brian, what, Richard? Brian. Jesus. Oh, I've seen something really good. I think you're really, really, really going to enjoy this okay, film. Okay, cool. What's it's it about? It's really great. It's about the BDSM scene and the Wait emotional complexity of it Wait. and you know, consent oh uh, and issues surrounding you know, the, the issue of male gay. Richard, and- I
1: swear to God, if you're talking about Fifty no, Shades no, no, of no, Grey, I am going to come over there. I'm going to beat you with a double-ended dildo right in the head until you are dead.
0: No, no, it's not that.
1: Oh, it's not Fifty Shades of Grey?
0: No, no, no. Oh, thank
1: God, yeah, I was like, that's just in theaters We can't talk about that on Digital Noise anyway
0: No, 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 no. we can't I would never subject you to that
1: How about 50 cans of beer?
0: Ooh
1: Sexy applause and drop your drawers it's time for another cyber sensual episode of digital noise right here on one of us.net and this by the way is Friday the 13th <laughs> I love it. and I love that it's Friday the 13th the day before Valentine's Day so you could potentially watch back to back the remakes of Friday the 13th and my Bloody Valentine and see both of the bro- the Winchester brothers from Supernatural. <laughs> See, boom, boom, right there. But then
0: that would require you to watch the remake of My Bloody Valentine.
1: Yes, which I agree is, is utter horseshit. Although yeah. I do like the uh, Friday the 13th remake. Ooh, really? I do, I do, actually. Hmm. Well, this is our Blu-ray and DVD review podcast that strives to bolter your home media collection with only the best and help you avoid the rest, despite... What I may have just said.
0: <laughs>
1: Richard's giving me that look like, are you? what planet are are you from? That's fine. That's fine. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, and joining me once again, my brother from another dimension, renowned journalist and reputed Brit. Hello! Mr. Richard Whitaker. Morning, all. Morning, all. Hey, Hi. hope. Uh, I want to remind you once again that Digital Noise is available on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. And you can like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash... One of us, Net. Uh, I want to remind you as well to become a subscriber if you haven't already. We have had an influx of new subscribers. Thank you guys so much. You are ensuring that we get to continue bringing you content over and over and over and over again. Uh, mm. I do know that we have a new episode of the Theog that is in the subscriber forums. It is the first official subscriber-exclusive episode of the Theog and is the best of 2014. Uh, so I know a lot of people are going to want to hear what the guys have to say about that. And in order to do that, just become a subscriber at the $5 level. Or above. Uh, also, we just put something in the in the Jedi. Uh, we we got a couple new Jedi subscribers, Ooh. and to say thank you for be, you know subscribing at the highest level, we have our Fifty Shades of, of Gray review up on the site right now with special guest Doctor Nerdlove. Whoop. And after the review, there were some more words exchanged when the microphones were still on, uh, that we have called the after show fifty shades. Uh so we've put that Are up you, in the oh, Jedi called, Cantina of the forums.
0: You should have called it the afterglow. I wanted to. I was so not in charge bad. of
1: this. Uh, That's what I wanted to call it as well. That's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But that the is wet the- spot. so there is something uh all over the place for subscribers at, at the various <laughs> levels. What's what?
0: <laughs> all over the place. All Went over the everywhere. Place. We Went just everywhere.
1: we jizzed exclusive content all over those forums. So go look for it and and clean it up, jizz moppers. Um, yeah. So I uh, also want to announce that starting next week, there's going to be some interesting shakeups here at Digital Noise. Whoa. Some um, I don't I don't really want to give it too much away. Nope. Other than you may be um experiencing some new sensations. Why why is everything on this show today about about BDSM? I don't. It's like not even intentional. When, when isn't it? That's a good point. That's a very good point, in fact. But hey... People are going to
0: go back and listen to early episodes with a whole different subtext now. They,
1: they totally will, as they should. Yep. Uh, but hey, it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers. We call... The letterbox. Woo! 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 Yeah! You've got mail. Yes, that's right, The letterbox. Torgo, you're gonna have to take the Gimp mask off. I mean, it's just... It's really... Fre- oh, God, put it back on. No, 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 you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Put it back on. Oh, thank you. Way less freaky. Okay. Next
0: time, can he actually put it on his face, though?
1: Yeah, that would be... That zipper's gotta hurt like hell. Yep. Neil Kelly asks, What are some of your favorite British comedy TV shows, such as Little Britain or Black Books? Now... Richard, as I understand it, you are
0: British. I have watched the odd piece of British television uh, on the the national networks, yes. Okay. That may have happened. Uh, I'm going to go back and uh, throw some old ones out uh, to you. There's a great series called Porridge. Porridge. Uh, Porridge, which was in the 1970s. And it was set in a prison. Porridge in a prison. Porridge. Well, the the term is uh, in the UK, you go to prison, you're doing porridge. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um,
1: I could tell you that I knew that, but I would be telling porky pies. Uh, stop now. See, I know that. I know that. Stop window. it.
0: Uh, imagine a lightly comedic version of Oz.
1: Ooh. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't want to. Don't make me, please.
0: The uh, the central character, um, uh, Fletcher, uh, played by the great British comedian Ronnie Barker, is. is he's you know, a petty thief uh, who, you know, he knows he's a criminal. He doesn't deny he's a criminal. He knows, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to prison again. This happens, and it's about him basically being the guy who is going to survive. You know, he knows how to mess with the the screws just enough. He knows how to like you know manipulate people around him. There's only one person he's actually afraid of. He's basically the big boss of the entire place. Okay, um, and it's just beautifully balanced show about a scumbag who you kind of like
1: um we are familiar and, with that in the states i yeah. think
0: yeah Well, i mean it really is it's one of the first shows that re- comedy shows that has a true anti-hero huh. as its lead and he was you know in his very respected comedian long uh, um uh long history and this was a really kind of weird subversive little show that has actually withstood the test of time extraordinarily well so if you can find episodes of porridge uh i'd really recommend it also if you haven't Seen it You know The IT crowd
1: That was going to be My only answer it is, it's really the is only...
0: phenomenal But I'd also go Go back and watch A series called Father Ted
1: Oh it's uh, Rowan Atkinson Right Nope Nope nope. Just kidding Just... That's Blackadder Yeah
0: that's Blackadder Fading
1: into the background
0: <laughs> Bye bye Billy Um, uh, Another series By Graham Lenehan Who did um uh, uh the, the IT crowd But it's about Three Irish priests On a tiny island In the Irish Sea Called, called Craggy Island and they've all been sent there for various reasons. One of them is basically so ancient and insane, and he can only say, uh, drink girl's ass" or feck, or some combination of them. So it's the epitome of like the crazy old Irish priest. Hmm. Um, uh, Father Dougal, who is probably uh, brain damaged um, and incredibly stupid. And the first line is, is Father Ted, uh, after whom the series is named, uh, explaining to him with the use of a, an actual cow and a model cow, the difference between small and far away.
1: (laughs) Okay. Like Grover on an episode of Sesame Street. really, it
0: really is. And then Father Ted, who uh, ended up being sent there because uh, they'd raised some money for a charity event, and it mysteriously ended up in his uh, personal bank account Ah. and then in the casinos in Vegas. Um, it, Uh It is wonderfully dark, It got the creators into all kinds of trouble in Ireland. It's a phenomenal piece of TV. Um, One other thing I would, would wholly recommend, Nathan Barley, if you can find that. Um, Nathan Barley is the epitome of the terrible scumbag uh, contemporary reporter who you know he's just got the job because his uncle knows somebody and there's these serious TV executives who like are trying to struggle through knowing that this piece of shit who knows nothing about the world uh, but understands how to manipulate it enough it is a great show it's made by the same people who did um, Four Lions great draft house films release Oh, okay. um, also try and find some episodes of the day uh, of the day-to-day which is the best news satire show you've ever seen? Because it's a show uh, which satirizes everything about news uh, in a way that the Daily Show—it looks tame by comparison. It really does.
1: Wow. Well, that was a question obviously that you were far more suited to answer. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one that uh, seems a little bit possibly directed at me. Ooh. Uh, and it is junk food cinema. Uh, this is a question from Boyd C. Atkins IV. Junk food cinema relates movies to snacks and their reviews. And you may be thinking to yourself, what's junk food cinema? That's actually a show, a podcast that I do with Cargill over on Film School Rejects every Tuesday.
0: Yeah. And uh, is you there were a- discussing Yafit Koto the other day. When- I, yes, yes, we did a,
1: an episode and we're doing a whole series this month on our favorite black character actors. So we did an episode on Yafit Koto, who's one of my absolute favorite actors, period. Um, and the question is, is there a movie that is total junk food to you... And if so, what is your snack food? Now, the concept of the show is that I like a lot of movies, like genuinely like a lot of movies that are considered by academic standards to be bad. And I recognize that much as I recognize that a Burger King Whopper is bad for me. But sometimes I'm just in the right mood to have one. Hence, junk food cinema. Um, and I actually do. I want to answer this question first. And I'll give Richard time to think about his answer. Um, Punisher, sure about it. Punisher Warzone is a movie that is f- fucking terrible. Because nobody, nobody had a lead on, on the filmmakers. Nobody told them to rain shit in. So that's why you get things like a white Rastafarian Irish parkour, uh, artist being blown up by a missile. That's one scene in a tapestry of insane that is Punisher Warzone. And yet, I, it's my favorite Punisher movie of all of them. It's so much fun. And it's, it's exactly the kind of, it's it's a horror movie. I mean, it's, it's a Lionsgate superhero film, but it feels like a Lionsgate horror movie. And I think I would definitely have to go as a snack food pairing. What you do is you take a bunch of gummy bears, okay, and you put them in a bowl and you microwave that bowl and the gelatinous goop that is created when you do that looks exactly like the inside of a man's head through which the Punisher punches Yay. at one point, and he punches completely through a man's skull. His fist is so mighty, he can go through several layers of bone and, and brain matter and skin and come out the other side. It is absolutely something out of Hatchet, and I love that movie so much, so that that's my answer for sure.
0: I... And actually, I was reminded of this recently, but i have reminded of how much I love this film. Um, Balls of Fury. Really? I love that film. (laughs) It's so stupid. Christopher Walken as Fu Manchu.
1: Well, every other actor seems to have played Fu Manchu at some point, so why not?
0: it's it's completely ridiculous it is a it is a film that knows that that unless it embraces its its stupidity fully it's going to be a complete disaster area and somehow it goes it 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 takes all its own craziness and gives it a big old jolly bear hug um and as long as you are along for the ride you are absolutely 100% in yeah um uh I for me that is pixie sticks uh, poured all over uh, Whataburger chicken strips. Uh, <laughs> there's some surprising <laughs> meat to it, but basically what you're getting is you know just a ridiculously fun good time and all the sugary like totally incoherent filmmaking. Love it.
1: Fair enough. There we go. Well, thank you so much for your questions, guys. We're going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox this week and move on to <laughs> The Reviews. <laughs> Ooh, total. Thank you. And I want to remind you yet, yet again that every title we talk about, there will be a link here on the page on oneofus.net. It's an Amazon link. If you click on that link, if you get to Amazon via that link, it doesn't even matter what you buy, you're still benefiting the website. So if you're going to buy that title or anything from Amazon, please come here, click one of those links first. It doesn't cost you anything and really benefits us. We really appreciate it. I'm going to start this week with a film that I'm just going to say it right now. No doubt about it. My pick of the week, 100%, one of my favorite films of last year. A film for which Richard is currently wearing a t-shirt as we record that says Dog's Best Friend, John Wick. Oh my goodness gracious. There was a, you know, I think I talked about this on other podcasts, but right after the summer of 2014 came a slew of really great crime films. Like, really great revenge movies, really great film noir, just a lot of outstanding crime films that kind of were just here and gone. And I don't think all of them necessarily got the praise and the attention that they deserved. That being said, in Austin, there's one movie that definitely got the praise and attention oh, they deserved. It and that movie is John Wick. Yep. Oh my God. Keanu Reeves plays a man whose wife has just died of cancer. And because she belonged to some weird internet site that I still haven't been able to find, which I'm calling posthumouspuppies.com, <laughs> she is able to send him a dog after she has died with a note that basically says, Now that I'm gone, you need someone to love, here's this dog. Now, you guys are all very aware of my distaste for murdering dogs in movies. I fucking hate it. It has caused me to completely write off some movies. I'm not saying it will automatically make me write off a movie, but if there's nothing else in the movie worth talking about, I will shut down at that moment. And when this dog is introduced in a movie that I knew was going to be violent, I was like, "God damn it, I know what's going to happen here." And then like the pieces start getting building to that point, and I'm like, "You motherfuckers, I know what's going to happen. And I'm going to spoil... This is this shouldn't be a spoiler by this point. Because I believe it's even in the trailer. Mm-hmm. What happens is, of course, the dog, which is an adorable tiny puppy... It's a beagle! It's a beagle puppy, for God's sake. Gets murdered by a Russian gangster. And they steal John Wick's car and they beat him up. Okay. Here's why this movie gets a pass for me. From me. Because the only person on this planet who hates dog death more than me... Is John Wick. Mm-hmm. Because when they murder his dog, this guy unsheaths the fiery sword of apocalypse. And it turns out, oh, by the way, that guy whose dog he just killed used to be the top Russian assassin. He is a guy that, uh, as one character in the movie puts it, is not the boogeyman, but the person you send to kill the boogeyman. And they have unleashed, they've unleashed hell. Yeah. And it's just, it's 90 minutes of watching people pay for killing a dog. Yeah. It's and amazing. What
0: I, what I like about it is, you know, I actually got to talk to the filmmakers about this, and they said, you know, the two things that they were told when making action films is never kill the dog, never have a hero with a beard.
1: And so they did and, both. And they
0: do both, and yeah. they get away with it because the whole idea of this guy who's been through so much, and, and increasingly you go, wow, his wife didn't just, you know, she didn't just die, and he, you know, and he didn't just love her. She redeemed him from basically being the antichrist. He,
1: she was the reason he stopped killing.
0: Yeah. And now suddenly, like, the last link to her is gone. And the last just, link to his
1: own humanity is gone. And he's like,
0: okay. Yep. Okay. This is, where um, the, this is where the story ends for all
1: you motherfuckers. Yep.
0: This is like, you know, and there's like... there, you, And you, you know that there's no way he's going to be stopped other than by being killed in 10,000 ways. Yeah. And even then... It might not work.
1: Yeah, he's kind of the Rasputin of revenge. Yeah. You're I mean, going to have to kill him several times.
0: <laughs> Even then, really, seriously, no. This is this is a guy who knows how to do martial arts scenes. This is Keanu Reeves, a man who like gets the genre extraordinarily well and went off and learned how to do absolutely everything that John Wick can do.
1: And I think that's that's what sets this film apart, is that he learned how to do these things. He's not using a lot of stunt doubles. Uh, and not only that, but he brings... A depth to this character His performance is really strong And I I don't think that gets enough uh, Enough attention And even as this movie is getting attention Is that Keanu Reeves isn't just a badass in this He's really really good in this Like his performance is excellent
0: Yeah I mean he Well I mean this thing He's been a a really strong actor from day one From you know River's Edge Which we talked about a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. And and people I think are suddenly realizing Like he can carry this kind of chops This is the film where he becomes Steve McQueen Yes This is the final moment where you go Holy shit, he has that level of charisma, that level of coolness, that level of intelligence. Um, and he can carry some depth. And, you know, I, you do feel that, like, he's been through some rough stuff and personal stuff in his lifetime. And I think he brings some of that to bear, mm-hmm. which is very brave for an actor, particularly one sure. in something that could have been a, you know,. Cut and shunt, run and gun, not particularly interesting action film. Right. This really rises above. I mean, this feels like something like point blank.
1: Absolutely. And the thing is, it has a great supporting cast on top of Keanu Reeves. Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe, uh, Adrian Palicki... um... Michael Nyquist. Michael Nyquist as the bad guy. Ian McShane. um, Alfie Allen, who most people know as Theon Greyjoy from Game of Thrones, whose dick you will want to rip off with your bare hands. Yeah. Uh, And then, here's my favorite piece of casting in the whole movie, Daniel Bernhard, who made an entire career for himself in the 90s because... Get this, he looked like Jean-Claude Van Damme He was literally, his career was making Bloodsport sequels And movies where it was like, we can't get Jean-Claude But get this other martial artist who looks a lot like him That's the whole reason, but that being said He's been in a shit ton of action movies So it was like seeing action movie royalty in the film Even though most people are like, I don't know who that is
0: Well, uh, Michael Nyquist is stellar But his best scenes are with Dean Winters Who is one of my favorite character actors Dean Winters, yes, uh, yeah, also as, known as
1: uh, Dennis Duffy from Thirty Rock.
0: Yep, uh, also and, and
1: Mayhem from the uh, Progressive commercials. <laughs> again, Allstate. Yeah,
0: another throwback to Oz because he was. You know, he was a, <laughs> there you go. You know, he was a recurrent in Oz, and he, here he, he plays the uh, lawyer to uh, Nyquist's um, uh, Russian Russian criminal oligarch, and he's great in this. This is the thing: there is no weak point in this film. It takes a really ridiculous concept, but goes these people are all through the Looking Glass anyway. Right. You know there's this you know, whole parallel world of this wonderful hotel that uh, assassins all stay at when they're in New York and like nobody talks about and there's you know, recurrent, recurrent discussions about can you get blood out of this shirt. It's like not that much blood. No. But we'll give it a <laughs> shot. It's like, this, this is...
1: Oh, and you know what? I'm sorry. Lance Reddick. Also yeah. has a small part in this movie, yeah. and he's outstanding.
0: Yeah, there is nothing wrong with this film at any level. Did I mention John Leguizamo? I don't think oh, I did. Oh, no. John Leguizamo as well. Has
1: got a solid role in this. This is a really outstanding cast to surround John Wick. And by the way, the action sequences are brutal. Yeah. They are ugly. They are not... I won't, I won't say they're exactly like the ones in the raid, but they have that same sense of absolute uh ab- absolute abandon of human life. Yeah. Like when people just get shot directly in the face at Point Blake Range, you're just like, "Oh my god, what the fuck?" There is
0: also a wonderful sequence where it's it's not really a car chase. It's John Wick beating people to death with a car.
1: Yes. Yes, just bam bam. Which
0: again, Keanu Reeves did pretty much all the driving for that. Yeah. Because you know, there there are this is worth getting on DVD or Blu-ray um for all the extras you will cuz you will really see how much of this stuff he did and actually Absolutely. how much being having him there changed how they could make the film and some of the shots they could only get away with because it's like well if we have a stunt guy doing this this one turn mm-hmm. then we can't pull the camera in really super tight on him yeah. being key and it's like no that's key doing this shit. and there, there's a couple moments they go, well yeah if he fucked up this stunt he's dead yeah like seriously totally dead and he wouldn't let us use the stunt driver he said no i got this don't worry he's Taking like-
1: his life in his own hands and i gotta say uh during I believe it was during Fantastic Fest last year, I got to interview Keanu Reeves, and it was just one of the most pleasant conversations ever because he is a really smart guy. Yeah. And he's one of those people that won't just immediately spit, if he doesn't know, won't just spit out the stock answer. He'll sit there and he'll think about it for a second and then give you this really, like, there's a lot of Zen philosophy in his answers to even the most trivial movie questions. And, uh, you know, going back to, like, people should have seen this coming because of his early roles, I actually made a joke because he talked about... Uh, when he put the suit on, he would kind of stand in the mirror and have a conversation with himself and uh, and kind of get into character. And I was like, oh, it was like my own private dialogue. <laughs> and he thought that was hilarious because he's like, wow, no one brings
0: up my own private idol anymore. <laughs> I
1: was like, yeah, that's me. Hello.
0: I think there's a thing. I mean, uh, he's such a nice guy. I've interviewed him twice. He's really lovely. He's making great career choices at the moment. He's making that are still daring and are Mm -hmm. still small enough productions uh, with people that he trusts. Sure, I think people are going to start going, wow, his career is only going to get more and more interesting Mm -hmm. from here on in, and he's going to put the legacy of things like the Matrix and Bill and Ted totally behind him. Right. Yeah. This is, and they're already talking about this becoming the next big action franchise, and if the same team stays involved, hell's yeah, it will. Yeah.
1: Not only with the. John Wick Two, but also with Cowboy Ninja Viking. Yes, which is the other thing they're working on. And I'm like, yes, all of that, please, yes. immediately.
0: <laughs> yeah, pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Straight out of the. Straight out of the. But but that that said, you were wrestling not, this week. Yeah. This was not an easy week because there is there are a lot of really great diverse titles this week. Yeah. And moving on, speaking of diverse,
1: let's talk about ABC's of Death Two. Woo-hoo. Now this is a sequel to one of the most ambitious anthology films ever conceived, where you have 26 different filmmakers or filmmaking teams taking a letter of the alphabet and then building a short around a method of death or killing that starts with that letter. And, you know, the thing about the first movie is I admired the ambition. I really liked so many of the filmmakers involved. But the problem with most anthology films is that let's say you have five vignettes Three out of the five of those are going to be really good. And the other two might be passable to bad. Now, when you stretch that number out to 26, the law of averages just tells you there is going to be a lot of dead weight in that group because there's just no way every single segment can sustain. And sure enough, in the first one, my problem was as much as I liked certain vignettes... Overall, I liked a lot less than I disliked. Yeah. Um, I will say for ABCs of Death 2, which is, I'm sorry, ambition on top of ambition to the ambition degree. Mm -hmm. Because they got mostly 26 new filmmakers. I mean, some repeats. But uh, mostly 26 new filmmakers. Uh, Actually, I may be wrong. There might not be any repeats in this. But anyway, and basically do the same thing again with 26 new shorts. And I have to say, ABCs of Death 2, mathematically... A lot more of these vignettes I liked than I did the first one. So the average in this one is a lot better.
0: Yeah. Oh, I mean well, this is the you know Fantastic Fest Alumni uh, volume two. So many of the people exactly. involved in this. Uh you know, just going through a few of them. Uh uh Dennison Ramalho. Uh uh, uh, Robert Morgan, the uh, uh, Julian Gilby, Julian Barrett, El Katz, uh, the Soska twins. Uh, I think Nacho's. Has Nacho got something in this one. I um, say he does. I
1: don't I feel. I don't, it. See, that's the thing. Is it? I even have the list in front of me, so I guess I should just run down this real uh, quick.
0: Vincenzo Natali, um, Stephen Katansky. Uh Yeah, I mean, some of it is is really great. Some of it just feels like um, a, a prop. Um, I, I don't
1: see Nacho's name on here uh, anyway.
0: It felt like he should be in there somewhere. Um, I agree. So, yeah, the, the, the weakest ones uh, are... Uh, I think the weakest yeah. ones
1: are the ones that are reaching for the most. And by that I mean they're either animated or they're from filmmakers who live in such remote countries or such genre film deprived countries that they just don't have... Like the the, the African one... Is I don't know what they were trying to go for. Were they trying to go for like cannibal Holocaust level of I, awful? I don't because- know. I think
0: he was trying to fit together like an hour and a half of film into three minutes, and it just didn't. It, it felt like a previously on Hill Street Blues moment where you're like, no, I needed to have actually seen that to understand it. And I think there was some cultural reference I didn't get. Sure, it probably didn't help. But like the makeup was really bad, and I couldn't
1: tell if it was intentional or just because they well, didn't have much of a budget is- or what.
0: Oh, what's his name? Hang on, Lancelot
1: look. Odawa. Uh, Im- e- wow in isn't that his name
0: yeah well he actually is you know he, he's the king of Nollywood mm. uh yeah you know. okay. so you know he really is working with no money like okay, the, you fair know enough. he he uh, this is this great guy who makes great bizarre little action and horror films uh out of the back of his TV repair shop in Nigeria i mean he's a really fascinating guy um and you know i think they included this because i know tim League, is who's one of the producers on this is uh you know a big fan of his work um you do kind of go, well, that seems to be a favor for a friend, which it, it really is. But, you know, bless him for trying. Um, yeah. yeah. I think this this comes in really strongly. The first, I'd say, four or five segments are... are oh, the,
1: the, the it comes right out of the gate with D.L. Yeah. Katz's A is for Amateur, which is this hilarious segment about a hitman who crawls through and does this perfect hit. And then you realize that's the visualization. The reality is something way darker way grosser the the actual reality of trying to pull off what he was trying to pull off was just so viscerally upsetting and hilarious at the same time yeah. really really like that and then
0: "Beast is, is for badger by julian barrett which uh is apparently based on a semi-real story about this uh, this real natural history presenter uh, on documentaries, who was a complete prick to everybody? in This kind of wish fulfillment of what would have happened to him. <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah, uh, Julian Gilby, CF capital punishment. I'm not a fan of Robert Morgan, the animator. So. No,
1: DS ready last is like yeah. it, it was
0: like watching an Alice
1: in Chains video that I didn't want to watch.
0: Yeah, and, it, and not uh, yeah, and again with the animation, not the best Bill Plimpton I've ever seen. That's what I'm uh, saying. Uh, the animated ones like, are
1: usually the weakest.
0: Yeah, that, that that wasn't strong, but. Uh, Larry Fessenden's N is for Nexus I really liked because it, it goes you've got three minutes to tell a story let's make the time the issue mm-hmm. and it's Larry Fessenden who's a fucking god as far as I'm concerned right. um, and the the strongest one as long as you have a strong stomach for it Z is for Zygo. I don't disagree I, I mean I don't agree that's
1: the strongest one I
0: think that's the strongest one because it's such a daring concept and I think it absolutely is nailed uh, for me that is the favourite one because, and that was the one that I got to the end and I didn't think, oh, I, I've sat through 26 shorts, meh. Okay, I was like, I want to I see more by that filmmaker, which I think shows its strength. But I do, I do think the front is good, the, the back is good, it sags a little bit in the middle. There's a couple that I'm like, are truly disposable. And I want you to think that. about
1: that description based on the subject matter of that short and how creepy that is.
0: Anyway, uh, but yeah. The, uh, yeah, the, but uh, yeah overall, I think this is, this is more successful than the first ABCs uh but i think inherently uh, you're always going to find some limitations on the anthology format
1: and what i think is is doubly impressive though is that there is a running commentary throughout each one of these shorts mm-hmm. and it's seamless it goes all the way through without a problem every filmmaker talking about their films boom 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 it's man like that in and of itself is ambitious on top of the fact that this is a sequel with 26 short films to a film that had 26 short films
0: oh and the soska twins doing a making of which is 40 minutes long for a 3 minute short
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is there is that. Um Yeah, and then nineteen out of the twenty six segments have some form of bonus material. So this is not just slapped on there yeah. with all the shorts. I mean, they really did take their time um and, and put something together for the fans, and I gotta say, I like it better than the first one. Yeah. That's that's about where I'll where I will leave that. We will see if they do another one. I just want some of these guys to start collaborating with each other now, is what I want to see. Yeah. Uh moving on from there, we're gonna talk about a hundred and one Dalmatians, the Diamond
0: Edition. Riff. Rough. Let's face facts. You either know whether you like this or not by now. I mean, yeah, yeah I don't have to sell you too <laughs> much is on this movie. This a Disney movie. classic. But you know, what makes it a diamond? Well, is it a diamond in the rough, or is it just you know, is it you know, uh, cubic zirconium?
1: I think they want to skim enough money off of people that they can buy another diamond encrusted monorail to take the executives from one retreat to another.
0: Monorail. Monorail.
1: Monorail. Monorail. <laughs> monorail. Monorail. <laughs> uh, there's one in Shelbyville. And North Haverbrook. Anyway, so... Ogdenville? Ogdenville? as well. So 101 Dalmatians, 1961, uh, is is in fact a Disney classic. Um, it, it introduces one of the Disney library's best villains in Cruella de Vil. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I will quickly run down the plot. 101, or I guess uh, 15 puppies are born to this, uh, this family, a composer and his wife. And this... F- no, to their dogs. I'm sorry. You're right. To the dogs. <laughs> they don't actually give birth to them. I, I it's got not ahead that of kind of film. I got ahead of myself there. Uh, and then this woman knows... Uh, the, the lady of the house knows this hideous fur obsessed woman named Cruella DeVille who wants to buy the dogs who I'm sorry, may as well have been carrying an ax and a, and a bucket for the blood. Like it's obvious why she wants to buy these dogs. So they're like, no, go fuck yourself. Uh, but it's a Disney film. So they find a nicer way to say that. Uh, so she has them abducted and taken to a farm where she's collected a hundred or 99, I guess. Cause the two main dogs make it a hundred and 101, 99 fucking Dalmatian dogs. Who she's going to turn into, I guess, a coat line or an entire wardrobe. She's a fucking hideous human being.
0: Now, when you tan uh, hides, I actually do reduce insides. So should I stop now?
1: You should fucking stop yeah. yesterday <laughs> with that shit. No, she's a horrible human being. Hang on, is this be... a
0: film that survives you or trying to kill? Because Oh, they don't actually kill any Exactly. Dogs. Spoiler.
1: They kill Cruella de Vil, and I don't care if that's a spoiler, because it's a Disney movie. What the fuck do you think happens? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, what's interesting though about 101 Dalmatians, I've been uh, kind of reading up on this, is that some of the animation techniques that they use for this movie would later allow them to take on bigger projects and work with new technologies of animation. So this is kind of a gateway movie, a gateway movie for the studio, because some of the techniques they're using led to them kind of being able to do bigger and bigger things. And uh, it is still a hand-drawn movie, mm-hmm. which are always going to be my favorite of the Disney movies. And uh, this Diamond Edition. It does have some pretty cool extras. First of all, the picture's really good. The sound quality is really good. And they do some interesting things with the special features. For example, there's an entire uh, song that isn't in the movie that is, in fact, on the Blu-ray that they put here for fans. It's a song called March of the 101, which sounds like a movie that would be narrated by Morgan Freeman. <laughs> but it's not. It's a song that was uh, excised from the original film. Uh, And there's two more uh, abandoned songs, actually, they talk about. One's called Cheerio, Goodbye to Lou, Hip Hip, and Don't Buy a Parrot from a Sailor. Is that an expression in England I'm not familiar with, Richard? Uh, Don't buy a a parrot from
0: a sailor? No, I don't think that's an expression anywhere.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Now, most, I mean, those are really kind of ported over from the DVD, I believe. (laughs) They do also have Cruella de Vil, the great uh, song that's about their, their villain, but it's sung by Selena Gomez. So do with that what you like. And they also have. This is really. This was the really interesting thing to me is that they have the further adventures of Thunderbolt, which is an a two minute animated short about the TV dog Thunderbolt, who they're watching. If in that one scene, and and then I started thinking, I was like. That's exactly where Bolt came from. Yes. The movie they would do years later with the with the TV superhero dog that was voiced by John Travolta, which is actually a really cute Disney film that I don't feel gets enough, gets enough praise. But I'm like, that's exactly where it came from. <laughs> that's absolutely where that movie came from. And I didn't put the pieces together until this Blu-ray came out. The
0: more you know. Do, 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 do.
1: <laughs> and also something, this really weird thing called Disney View, which I kind of understand why they put in there, but just feels like George Orwell Big Brother shit. Where they're like, we know the movie's in four three, so we're gonna put bullshit on either side of the screen, so you don't have to look at black bars. isn't that better? And no. it's like,, it's still in four three, but I guess you've distracted some idiots from noticing <laughs> there are black bars on either side. It's like, look, look over here, look at this, look at that, look like, at okay i'm not i'm not I'm not five, but I guess I'm also therefore not its target audience, so maybe I should stop complaining about that, um but yeah. There's a there's a lot of great features here. Like I said, it looks great, it sounds great, it is a classic. They don't kill any dogs.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, this is a second tier Disney. I I, 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 I could get I could. That that I, I'm not as big a fan of their 60s output, and this is the first Disney film of the 60s. Uh, Disney feature of the 60s. Uh, you got to remember, two years earlier, they'd done Sleeping Beauty, and I do think you can start to feel a little bit of oh this is what we do a little bit of this is the machine we we keep rolling mm-hmm. in this but i still think there's a lot of a lot of great artistry and second tier disney is still better than a lot of people's a lot of most people's first tier output it's so, like when we start know, complaining it about what, it
1: what the worst marvel cinematic universe movie is it's still better than the superhero movies that came before it by a, by a, a country mile yes. as it were so highly recommend that especially if you're a fan of the film i highly recommend this next film even if you're not a fan of anything, if you're just <laughs> a horrible, miserable person who hates all of humanity and and doesn't want to look at the sun, which you shouldn't because it'll burn your eyes, doesn't want to go outside. This is a movie called Nightcrawler, Ooh. and this movie, okay, which was so close, so to me close to being pick of the week, so, so close. close, because it too is one of my favorite films of last year. This it's very rare that I get to talk about multiple favorite films of last year in a single episode of Digital Noise, but here we have it. Now in this film. Jake Gyllenhaal plays a guy who who falls into the world of, I guess you could say, guerrilla uh, journalism, hmm. uh, where you where they just ride around and they look for car crashes, they look for robberies, they try to get to the scene of news before the police or at least before the other news crews. They film it, they sell their footage. So it's it's very much like paparazzi, except they're filming the real world. So it's cinéma vérité paparazzi.
0: This is a real thing. It's a real thing that exists. are a real industry there. It is a real business model. Um, and you know, automatically you think, well, these, these people are going to be a bit sleazy. Um, and um, when Bill Paxton turns up as one of the guys who has been doing this for years, you go, oh yes, he's a bit sleazy. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal is a monster. Jake Gyllenhaal does
1: not... Th- this is what I said in our review when we, when we reviewed this movie in theaters, is that this is the first post-moral exploration of the media that I've ever seen because the point of the movie isn't look how awful these people are being the point of this movie is look how Jake Gyllenhaal has fallen effortlessly into this world and made himself an even worse version of somebody that we're already supposed to dislike and yet there is never an ounce of second guessing himself no. there's never a moment where he feels and he's a complete and utter sociopath
0: yeah and uh, yet who you is, can't who is, stop watching him who has been raised on a solid diet of motivational speeches yes like this is the kind of person who is like clear you, and you're never quite quite sure where he came from or what his background is or, right. or anything about him and suddenly he's just like well He's found this career that will, will let him as a horrible human being mm-hmm. flourish beyond measure. And exactly. Then, you know, he everybody around him knows that he's doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. The question now is how far is he prepared to go? Right. And you quickly find Pretty damn he's far. prepared to go to go to the deepest, most horrible places imaginable. But he doesn't do anything. He right. just sets things up. I mean, this is birth of a supervillain, basically. Yes, absolutely. Um, but surrounded, you know, surrounded by people who basically are enablers because, uh, uh, and the prime of these is Rene Rousseau as the TV uh, news executive who goes, "No, I'll take your footage." And there is an amazing scene where you see exactly how much he emulates what it is to be a human being.
1: He, yeah, it's like it's, he's like a robot that's yeah. trying to learn. Not not how to be human, but how humans are so that he can more effectively do his job. Yeah. And what I the reason I say it's post-moral is that these nightcrawlers are so ubiquitous that every TV station in the city is buying their footage. And the economic reality is that these guys are just trying to make a living, and that's the way that most of them are portrayed. And that's why it's interesting that Jake Gyllenhaal stands out as such a sociopathic version of them, because... It's just accepted. It's the standard practice. And in fact, you know, th- there's some footage that gets sold that then gets gets spun on the news. Is look how heroic these cops are. Yeah. So you ha- you have a problem completely denouncing what they're doing because that footage is al- also being used to raise up people who deserve it. Yeah. So it's like, man, that's a real moral quandary to put in to put us in. So we'll
0: just completely ignore morals entirely. It is it it is news for profit. Yes, and purely for profit, and the the constant conversations about well, you know, is this going to lead? Will this, you know, will we need to reshow this again later at night? How how far we've to debate ourselves? Uh, the fact that so many of the people involved as uh, on air anchors in the shows, uh, in the fictional shows, are actually people with real TV experience, on <laughs> news in LA, gives it this degree of verisimilitude that mm-hmm. is really striking. Uh, the fact that this is also by the same guy. That wrote Real Steel.
1: Yeah, that really surprised me. because I fucking hate. That movie. Uh, <laughs>
0: uh, Re- Real Steel. Free Jack chases anybody. Yeah, Dan Gilroy, a man who, if you'd have come to me and said, uh, "Who do you think directed, uh, wrote, and directed this film?" You'd never go for Dan Gilroy. Well, this but is the first film he's is ever is a, directed. Yeah, this is for him to be anywhere near. For him to have been a lot of allowed on the set off he wouldn't have said this. Yeah, this is a really extraordinary work by everybody concerned. It's, final proof of just how good Jake Gyllenhaal Hall has become. I mean he's always been good, but between this and Enemy last year, two of the best character studies I think anybody did. Hmm. Uh I you know the you know I don't believe in like snubs in Oscars lists or anything like that, but for me the the one you look at, and in years to come, people will go, "Well, why didn't he even get a nomination? Uh, and the numbers just didn't work out that way." But you know, him not getting on the Oscars list is kind of like that's a gap.
1: I think it's probably because most people feel the way about Enemy that I do, which is why they were like, "No, fuck this guy, we're not giving him a nomination for so an actual good movie." So wrong. Sorry, not wrong, just bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. just bad storytelling. Heathen. No, nope. <laughs> uh,
0: no, but yeah, you know, we, we can all agree how just ridiculously good he is in this. So this is, fucking. This good. is a great film.
1: And the Blu-ray includes uh, a five-minute making-of and a feature commentary. By the way. Dan Gilroy's a family man. Uh, his producer and his editor are his brothers, Aww. Tony Gilroy and John Gilroy. So it's the three brothers, three Gilroy brothers, uh, doing the commentary here. So Is that a bar? Should be. It should be. The Gilroy. Three Gilroy Gilroys. The three Gilroys. going to have a pint done at the three Gilroys. I don't know <laughs> what <laughs> possibly, accent that was. but
0: And um, um, possibly a, a, a gimlet and a Rob Roy.
1: Yes. Those are things I am aware of. So highest of recommendations, so close to being our pick of the week, Nightcrawler, a a must see film yeah. uh if you want to understand exactly what 2014 was for film so definitely check that out another film that is uh generating a lot of award buzz i don't know if it actually got nominated for best foreign film i don't think it did no you did force majeure mm. uh force majeure which is uh a film that comes to us from the great nation of
0: norway mm. Is it is it Norway? No, I'm can- gonna let you dig yourself out of this. Damn ship. it!
1: I know it's I know it's Scandinavia. I always forget if it's if it's a Norwegian film, it's, if it's a Swedish film, or if it's it's a Swedish Norwegian French co-production. So how was I supposed to possibly <laughs> yeah. picture that shit?
0: <laughs>
1: it's called Force Majeure, which is a French title, but yeah. it's a f- fuck you anyway. <laughs> the movie is about a family on a holiday uh, at a ski resort when one day during lunch. There appears to be a controlled avalanche going on. You hear the explosions. Sometimes I didn't know they did this. Oh yeah! But apparently they do controlled avalanches when the when the snow gets too heavy and they don't want anybody yep. out there. They want to clear it off before anyone's in danger. So you hear the bangs of them trying to do a a controlled avalanche. And this family is sitting out on the terrace having lunch and watching it. And they're like, "Oh, it's controlled. It's controlled. And it's like it's also moving towards us." It's moving towards us. Why is it still moving towards us? And then as as the the powder starts to encompass them, dear old dad gets up and runs away and leaves <laughs> his entire family sitting around the table, which I thought, and maybe this is because I'm a terrible
0: person, was kind of fucking hilarious. <laughs> no, it is. It's absolutely, uh, you know, but then it turns out that it's, uh, it's just the mist and the fog being bl- thrown up by it and they're not actually in danger. And he comes back and goes, dessert anybody? And his yeah. wife's like... Nr-. And then there's all these mental
1: backflips as she's telling the story to people. He's like, I didn't run away. No, I, t- I definitely didn't I run didn't away, away. per se. We need to get on the same page about this story here. And it's just like, oh my... And then it starts to completely unravel their family dynamic.
0: Yeah. Well, but this is a really interesting thing. that There's been... The initial response to this film was that this is about... Uh, it's an indictment of modern masculinity. Which it is... But it's also an indictment of women. And, and, and this is about contemporary people and their responses to extraordinary situations. And it's actually pretty damning about everybody. And the yeah. director has said, yeah, I'm a little surprised everybody's focusing purely on how awful the husband is, because he is. The wife is terrible too. Yeah. Because all she does is you know, is basically wait for an opportunity to complain to their friends about him and belittle him in public, and it's like he's a, he's a bit of a scumbag. She's a shrew, mm-hmm. and the I I am a I really like this film a lot. Um, where I think I differ from a lot of people is I actually think this is an oddly reactionary little film mm-hmm. because she has a friend who is you know in an open an, relationship in an open relationship, yeah. and the wife is appalled by this mm-hmm. at every level. And then there's only one character who really seems to come to a position of almost getting her comeuppance. And that is the perfectly nice friend who is in an open relationship. And there's a final shot. I I do recommend that you see this one. But there's a final shot that if you look at and go, isn't this actually just a little bit reactionary? A very conservative view of what an ideal family should be and gender roles? And it's actually kind of you know it's very middle european in a mm-hmm. lot of ways very mm-hmm. very middle to northern european in a lot of its presentation of interfamily relationships uh and while you know it does take you know some pretty sharp jabs at you know the idea of men on holiday and like oh let's get away from the girls at the same time nobody comes off well but i i'm, I'm still not sh- i think this is one of the reasons that this film is gathering so much criticism and critical acclaim is that those final moments i think really are kind of a gut check for the viewer about what they think is going on and I have to say I'm coming out going I'm not sure how much I liked what those final moments were saying sure I think it does it in an extraordinarily brilliant and incisive way Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I 100% agree with what it is the filmmaker is trying to tell me is the right right thing to do yeah. Which is a very complicated position because most of the time we're reviewing stuff and it's like, is this good or bad? And we kind of like try to get past that basic metric. This is sure. undoubtedly a masterpiece filmmaking, um, but at the same time, I'm a little bit squeamish about some of its points.
1: It was nominated for a Golden Globe, um, but it was not nominated for an Oscar. So this it was
0: nominated is... for a Golden Globe, but you can't hold that against it.
1: That's true. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, was the
0: junkie to ski trip?
1: Oh shit! That's true. <laughs> That's true. Zim! Wow, take take another shot at HuffPo, why don't you? Whoa. HuffPo?
0: HuffPo? Huff, what are they called? Uh, Hollywood the, uh, Foreign Press? Hollywood Foreign Press Association. HuffPo? We'll, we'll take pot shots at HuffPo as well. We're not proud.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Fuck those guys. Uh, anyway, moving on, we're going to talk about a film called Foreclosure. And by that I mean Richard is going to talk about a film called Foreclosure that I completely forgot to watch.
0: Yeah, um, this is an odd little project. This is actually... The, it's got greenlit back in 2010 and then kind of disappeared. Um and you know it, it was it was greenlit at a time when uh, uh Michael Imperioli from uh, The Sopranos was a much bigger name. Mm-hmm. And I think over time it's disappeared with him. It is a very peculiar little ghost story. Okay. Um it is hindered by the fact that it was clearly about um five million dollars and uh, a decent director away from being a much better film yeah. <laughs> which is a bit of a shame yeah i mean it is cur- it is very limited by that um but the basic idea is that michael imperioli se- uh, plays uh, this this guy who his son he and his son and his uh, crazy old racist father-in-law played by bill raymond uh, end up inheriting this house from a family relative who's you know died in mysterious circumstances um and the house is kind of falling apart everything around it all the other houses around it are, are either in foreclosure or the cops are after the resident but residents but they try and keep themselves themselves so the cops don't come around when you suddenly start to find out that the house has a legacy Mostly that the family pretty much from before the civil War were all horrible racists Uh-oh. and uh, actually, at some point and you discover this very early on uh when they find a photo down in the cellar uh had actually lynched some guy in the backyard, oh shit and barbecued his corpse and oh, shit. put it in the uh, put a piece in every single shop window in town fucking shit this is uh, well and this is where it starts to get even worse because you then you you feel well there's odd supernatural things happening you get a glimpse of the guy who was who, who was lynched um for you know because he was he was African-American and he talked to a white woman and that was it jesus um then let's just say that your your belief about exactly what the supernatural forces are will get turned on its head And this becomes something much closer to the Shining. Oh shit! Uh, But but a a kind of a low budget version of the Shining. Yeah, there's actually some really strong stuff in here. um, But it ends up being kind of uh, mid bottom of the pile because there's not much creativity from the director. Uh,
1: Okay. Um,
0: But it doesn't try to go for jump scares. It tries to go for creep scares, which kind of work. Um, Yeah, it's not terrible. If you like low-budget horror with a brain to it, that's trying to do something unnerving, I think this actually does it pretty well. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I could almost see somebody go, "Look, let's take, let's buy the rights, uh, let's get Michael Imperioli back, uh, let's give it a five million dollar, dollar Bloomhouse-style budget." Uh, stick to how incredibly unpleasant it is at at the script level Mm -hmm. and you've actually got a a, a solid little shocker but yeah I think this is one of these films that it's so dark because of its subject material which is dealing with America's racist history and it does it pretty much square on by not presenting any really African American characters but saying this is what racists are like and this is the you know makes cultural references and historical references that really make you go the you know wow these people weren't just wrong, they were appalling. And these are you know, malicious, malevolent scumbags that you really want to see have their comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Um, it does that really well. Um, yeah, you know, I, I can't give this a, a wholehearted recommendation, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff in this. Uh, and you know, any honestly, anything with Michael Imperioli, I'm I'm always going to be interested to see.
1: That guy deserves a chance to be in more stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, moving on from there, another film that I know was very close to being Richard's pick of the week, and that is the uh, the mini series Olive Kittredge.
0: Yeah, uh, which I was not expecting to like anywhere near as much as as uh, I did.
1: Now, this was an HBO miniseries. HBO
0: <laughs> four hour mini series. About a grumpy lady. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very
1: joyful. This miniseries. It's, oh god! <laughs> in um, no way.
0: Uh, it's Fargo without the laughs. laughs. Not least because. Yeah,
1: yeah. So this is a story about a a married couple in Maine. Played. I mean, the principal couple is played by Francis McDormand and Richard Jenkins, who are both outstanding actors. Yeah. And people I could watch all day, which was put to the test when I had to watch them in this miniseries all day. Um. But basically, it's about. You know, each episode in this four-episode miniseries is at a different point in their life, and I feel like kind of was oddly reminiscent of Boyhood a little bit, because it felt like it was tracking documentary style through someone's life, except it wasn't shot as a documentary.
0: Well, this is uh, taken from the book by uh, Elizabeth Strout that... It's actually a series of interlocking short stories about basically a thirty-year portion of their of their lives in this this small town. Of like, and you know the the revelation of you know are, are they really in love with each other? Mm. Because he is the nicest possible human being. Yeah. Uh, whereas she is deliberately unpleasant to everybody.
1: She is a, she reminded me, speaking of Michael Imperioli and The Sopranos, of Livia Soprano. Yeah. Because she was just incapable of feeling any joy. And whenever anyone around her was feeling joy, she would try to undercut it. And she would just say these really unnecessary things. And she was, yeah, really hard to watch and really hard to get behind because, and I think that's what's interesting about this is that you're not really behind her for at least the first couple of installments. And then as things continue to progress throughout her life, you're kind of like, yeah, I mean, she's kind of horrible, but that situation is even more horrible. So yeah, I guess I do kind of feel for her a little bit.
0: Yeah, and everything, most of the things in her life are of her own infliction. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. There's self- she, she self-imposed alienates everybody deliberately. She is as malevolent as she can possibly be mm-hmm. to her son and his first wife, and it's probably a pivotal reason why she's his his first wife and not his one wife. Yeah. yeah. But then there are moments where you where you kind of like, well, she's actually just a, a realist about how unpleasant life is, and you know she she's at her best when she's dealing with people at their lowest ebb. Mm-hmm. Because that's the moment where all their blinkers are off, and then she's absolutely the person you want around. The rest of the time, no, go away! Yeah. You're appalling, and you know the fact that you are prepared to sit through four hours of this is a testament to how incredibly strong cast is. I mean, at the end of the first hour, I'm like, I, I, I'm really interested in this, but I'm kind of appalled by how how terrible a human being mm-hmm.
1: she is. Well, I feel like her biggest flaw is she was born in the wrong era. With her like resistance to joy and her flawless practicality at all times, she would have been a great Dust Bowl wife. Yeah, a Dust Bowl farmer's wife. That's exactly what she should have been. She was just born in the wrong time and place. So everyone around her is dealing, you know, like dealing with these various things and taking joy in very small things in life, and she's just like, "Oh, that's stupid. Yeah, you're a foolish uh, person."
0: Uh, and if you're wondering why this needed to be four hours, it really does need it it takes every second of its time to get to a really fascinating conclusion about mortality and about growing old and mm-hmm. about, you know, particularly about this idea of, you know, even if you have done horrible things throughout your life, do you have to come to terms with it? it? Is there a certain point where you go, I'm old, can I just move on with this stuff? Yeah. And, and, the, and the final scenes... Uh, really, the the final half hour, uh, which is Olive and um, an equally unpleasant character played with great joy by Bill Murray, who is actually the only person who can go, no, don't try and pretend you hate the world more than me, because no. it's not. And I don't think anybody else could carry this part off. This is yet another great Bill Murray performance. And even if, you, if, if that sounds like, oh, we've put a... Uh, a bag of treats and sweets at the end of this long trail of misery that you got to get through. You get to that point, and everything flowers. Everything comes into context. This mm-hmm. really is a wonderful, wonderful piece of television. Um, it it needs. It relishes the four hours. It is absolutely worth your time and investment. This is this is one of the best piece of television I've seen this year.
1: If I had a complaint, there were characters that I actually wanted to see more of, yeah. as they move, uh, especially the character played by. Um, Zoe Kazan, and Zoe Kazan, who is this mousy like little pharmacy assistant, where Richard Jenkins is the is the local pharmacist, and her story is really tragic, and then really hopeful, and then immediately tragic again, and then it's just gone. Yeah. And I wanted to see how that played out. And the reason I had a problem with them kind of just ditching her after a couple of installments is there's a woman who plays the piano who's in every single one, and yeah. I'm like, I don't care about the woman who plays the piano. But
0: I, I think that was kind of the point that they, you know they are. Stuck in this small town, it's where they want to be. It is where their lives. But we don't are. know if they are or
1: not because we never see them again.
0: No, no, no. That's the thing. She, she because they reference that she, she, she leaves, and that's the whole thing. It, it is about Olive and her husband and these people that intersect with their lives, mm-hmm. and it's not what she's doing it's the impact that she's had upon them after she's left. I think that's what makes those scenes powerful.
1: No, and I get that, but I just, that was to me, a more interesting story that they abandoned versus some of the, the thread lines that they carried through all the way to the end. And I'm like, this is not as interesting. Yeah. It's just not as compelling. And I felt like there was like when she finally uh, ends up with her husband, who I, I I won't say who it is because I don't want to spoil anything, but somebody you recognize and that relationship dynamic changes all of a sudden. And I'm like, Oh my God, I, I want to see how this plays out, and then it was just like I gone. I don't know,
0: that kind of reminded me of, uh, I'm going to get literary for a moment uh, Norman Mailer's Harlot's Ghost uh, where everything you have to remember is about the the POV of the uh, of the protagonist and to, I think if they followed her further, I think you would have lost some of that, it would have felt like a subplot, and I think that's one of the things that works about this, so you take something that is a book that is long and rambling and has mm. endless diversity, I mean the book has somewhere in the region of, you know, a hundred named characters, all of whom coming together. So, just this is a sheer act of, of refining that down to what you have,
1: I think, is quite an achievement. So, it's like the Iliad of Unpleasant New Englanders.
0: Well, the rest of them are quite nice. It's, it's just Olive is horrible. <laughs> That's a good point.
1: Yeah. And, That's no, I mean,
0: point. this is, uh, this is uh, you know, uh, just uh, a really, really strong piece of television. It's not, you know, game changing television, but I think as a as a you know four-part miniseries character study and relationship study, I think this is this is absolutely perfect.
1: Don't watch it if you're in a really bad mood no. and there's like poisons
0: in the house or anything like that. Because you might leave it out for other people. Yeah. Yeah. You, you might become a bit of a misanthrope. <laughs> it's entirely possible.
1: Well moving on from there, we're gonna talk about a film that I did not expect to like that I actually did enjoy quite a bit, and that is a film called Laggies. They sort of Recoming of age comedy starring Kieran Knightley, Chloe Grace Moretz, and the great Sam Rockwell. Now, the basic gist of the story here is that Kieran Knightley, uh, is kind of facing that quarter life crisis moment where her boyfriend proposes to her. She's not sure if that's what she wants to do. And she crosses paths with Chloe Grace Moretz, who is a 16 a year old uh, character named Annika, who wants her to buy beer for her and her friends. But the the teenagers take a shine to Kieran Knightley's character and ask to hang out. Also, they become friends. But it's a very strange situation because clearly, uh, Chloe Grace Moret's father, played by Sam Rockwell, does not like the fact that his daughter has a, a friend who is in her mid to late 20s. And so it's just kind of about, you know, the relationship between those three. And through the course of hanging out with 16-year-olds, with these teenagers, how she kind of comes to grips with her own bullshit and it's just it's sort of like this uh, imposed second adolescence, yeah. and what she takes away from it.
0: She yeah, she's kind of an awful character. Kind of yeah. She she is extremely spoiled. She is indulged by her father, uh, who who lets her get away with pretty much anything. And it's like you're you're the last of your friends to to get married but purely because you've been keeping your boyfriend uh, played by Mark Webber who actually looks alarmingly like uh, <laughs> Sam Rockwell all the little, way through yeah, this Sam Webber like, I was like Sam yeah I was like uh, hang on wait, who? Wait, who's next <laughs> oh right it's him sorry I was a bit confused um <laughs> I didn't love this as much as I think you did. Uh, I did enjoy it greatly because there is a kind of like weird, sparky energy Mm -hmm. uh, between Kira Knightley and Chloe Grace Moretz. Yeah. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz, for once, playing a character who is her age. Yeah, Rather than what she's been given previously.
1: Aging up or aging down. Yeah.
0: Well, more importantly, just to, you know, all all the characters she played have been wise beyond their years. Yeah. Uh, This one. It's an annoying sixteen-year-old who gets some old, some older lady to buy them booze. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say I loved
1: it. I mean, I I, I just said I enjoyed it quite yeah. a bit. But I but I do like the idea of. Um, and she, you're right. She is Keira Knightley is kind of a terrible person. But her friends are the most entitled, stuck up. Yes, just horrid people. Like there's a scene where they're at a bachelorette party and Ellie Kemper, uh, who is. Uh, Outside of her wheelhouse, because she's unlikable in this movie, yeah. uh, plays this character who's her friend who just starts chastising her for all these trivial things. Like, why'd you touch the nipples on the Buddha? That's disrespectful. And Kieran is like, are you a Buddhist? And she's like, no, but, you know, that's Buddha, so don't do that. <laughs> I think
0: playing with Buddha's nipples is a bit weird. I don't think it's funny. I don't yeah, know. Maybe it it's because I'm a terrible person like Kieran. It was, but it was also a bit weird. It's like this moment where you... But that's one of those moments where it reinforces like, yeah, like six drinks from now, that would be fine. Yeah. But not quite yet. Yeah. Calm, calm you jets, a little lady, though. <laughs> and and Gretchen Mole,
1: get this, playing a character who is a, a young mother who's very sexy, who men uh oogle and, and want to be with. Oh, wait a minute, it's almost exactly her character from Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Except she's a lingerie model in this instead of uh you know, the mother of a gangster in that. So uh but yeah, I think the the performances are solid all the way across the board. It's a very fun movie. It's it's got something to say, but not It's not heavy-handed about it. And I think that, you know, as as unlikable and as much of a kind of a terrible person as Kira Knightley is at the beginning, I feel like she does take something away from the experience and learn something because ultimately that's what's going to make or break the movie for you is how much you feel she's taken away from this relationship with Chloe Grace Moretz.
0: Uh, it, it's got a very mid-90s indie alternative comedy feel to it. Sure, yeah, I would agree I with ca- that. I could see somebody putting this on at a double bill with, you know, uh, but I'm a cheerleader or something along those lines. Right. You know, I think this is going to go down as, as a lesser movie for both of them. I don't really... Yeah, I'm not really quite sure exactly who it's pitched at, Mm -hmm. which is a weird thing. Sure. It's like, because she is so unpleasant and so, but it's still Keira Knightley. (laughs) So you're you're still contending with the fact that it's like, it's that nice English lady. Yeah. Although she does, yet again, a very good American accent.
1: Well, we're going to move on from laggies and talk about Rosewater, which is actually really uh, pertinent to talk about, as Jon Stewart has officially announced that he's leaving The Daily Show, which we all kind of saw coming once he started making movies. Bye-bye, John. Bye-bye, John.
0: Well, uh, I think we saw it coming you know, when he went, I'm going to go away for six months, and I'm going to come back. And it's clear I'm not really excited about being back on the stage. I'm doing it, yeah, but I'm not really thrilled
1: by it. Well, and you see this movie, and at first, at a completely uh, tertiary glance, you may not think that this is a suitable project for Jon Stewart because it's not a comedy. It's a very serious story about a journalist being jailed in Iran, um, basically for filming, uh, malfeasance in the government.
0: And also filming a skit on the daily show
1: and filming a skit on the daily show, which they use against him. Now there, that's not the, I think that's the connection directly. Yeah. But what makes this the perfect project for Jon Stewart is that Jon Stewart and the daily show has been about, Fairness has always been about, let's be honest here, let's not bullshit, and it's all directed at the world of journalism. It takes aim at journalists, at media outlets who have agendas. So it's really, like, what The Daily Show is really about, for all of its tongue-in-cheek, for all of its jokes, is really about getting to a point where journalism is fair and balanced. And that's exactly what this movie is about, is about a journalist trying to do his job in a country that does not want fairness or balance from its media. It wants to control it because it's a totalitarian regime. Yeah. So it's perfect for Jon Stewart. Now, I had seen this in theaters, and Richard, I know this was your your first time seeing it, it as hitting Blu-ray, so I'm yep. interested to know, since I've already been on a review for it, what did you think of this
0: movie? Um, I, I think it, it proves that Jon Stewart actually is a really fascinating director. Mm. And I think he... he has intentions of doing something meaningful, Mm -hmm. which can be very dangerous for a a, uh, a director because most of them don't understand how the world
1: works.
0: (laughs) Whereas he does. I think he has a, a real grasp of the questions of morality. And I think what really makes this fascinating is that he is so connected to the material, not just because he wants to ask these big questions about responsibility and culpability in the media Mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of the polar opposite of Nightcrawler in a way where you have a guy who's like will put anything out there. Here have a guy who really was put going, look, if I put this piece of material out there, there's a really good possibility that the people I capture on this video will be hunted down by the secret police and killed. Right. So I have a responsibility, do not. And then he gets taken to task by somebody else going, no, you have a responsibility absolutely to show what is going on here. And points to the camera and go, you have the greatest weapon of all. Mm-hmm. And you refuse to use it. Which is a really fascinating sequence. And I, I think that's the thing. I think this is... This is almost John Stewart saying here's why I'm leaving the Daily Show. <laughs> you know, and this is based on a a true story. This is based on the uh the uh, adaptation of um, and then they came for me uh by uh, Mazir Bahari, mm-hmm. um who is a real, you know, former Iranian journalist who gets picked up because you know because they go, well, why are you on the Daily Show talking to talking to a spy? It's Like uh, Daily Show's a show. Jason comedy? Jones is not a spy.
1: And they know this. That's the thing is the government's well aware of this. They're just using it as a flimsy excuse to keep him in prison for 118 days.
0: Yeah. And it, this this does tackle you know, it does look at what torture in those environments is really like. Uh, because he didn't get subjected to the worst of tortures, but he is undoubtedly being tortured because they know the international community is looking at him, and they want mm-hmm. him to they, they want to be able to say, "No, he—he he confessed." And it's really fascinating from that point of view. It is visually much more adventurous than I expected John Stewart to be. Much more visually creative.
1: Um, See, I felt like it was a little visually plain for my taste, but again, I didn't hold that too much against Stewart because it's like I. I don't know, it's kind of a backhanded compliment that I didn't expect it to be from a first-time director. But at the same time, I wasn't really Im- impressed with the visuals of no, the No, I movie. actually
0: really liked that, because I think it integrated things like uh, his home ma- his home movie footage really nicely. Um, and the compositions were very simple. If I had one real issue with this, mm-hmm. uh, it is in the casting of the lead actor. Oh, um, yes, of course. Yeah, because...
1: It's uh Gail Garcia Bernal
0: yeah, and i'm like he's he's perfectly fine in this role uh it's it's a you know he manages it more than more than well
1: mm-hmm.
0: i'm i'm I am kind of wondering exactly why you had to have a Mexican actor playing an Iranian guy, yeah. and he doesn't look Iranian. I'm no. sorry, he does not look Iranian. And I reject
1: the idea that there's no Iranian actor who could have carried this role. Yeah, I completely reject that idea. And then,
0: then I had uh, to, you know, get somebody from the region. They must be out there. So I was a little bit, a, a little bit surprised about his casting. Well, especially that doesn't quite make sense to me, especially
1: since he's not a Hollywood headliner. No, you know what I mean. Like there was no, there's not even a reason on the studio side of things to go this route. Yeah. it makes no sense whatsoever.
0: Uh, yeah, that, that that's an odd decision, and I would love to get John Stewart's um, take on why he made that decision. Yeah, but uh, yeah, beyond that, I mean, this is a really strong documentary about journalistic morals, about the higher calling of journalism. So again,
1: the exact opposite of Nightcrawler.
0: Yeah, <laughs> they, they are they are each other's shadow in many yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a, a, a solid debut from a. a, a A creative force who I think is proving that he's got that he's got something really interesting to say, and yeah, you definitely want to catch this, and you will definitely want to catch whatever he comes up with next, particularly if it's Death to Smoochie Part Two.
1: Yay, Death to Smoochie! And there's a lot of uh, they're very short, one minute kind of uh, special features each about the real story here, and the fact that they're all exactly one minute is very baffling to me. It was almost like that's it, but I guess if you're coming from a world of TV where your segments are only allowed to be so long. You, you kind yeah, of get I mean, in green. you could have done that. a
0: much better full documentary. Agreed, agreed. And I think it deserved it. You know, yeah. so it's just, that's just my gut. But yeah, solid, solid film.
1: Well, speaking about uh, truth and journalism, let's talk about Brotherhood of Blades, which has nothing to do with truth and journalism.
0: Uh, but is... we'll
1: come back to that. In, we'll come back to the issue of truth and journalism later. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, but this is uh, oh, we tease. This is a big Chinese epic which means I don't know what the fuck is going on at any point during this movie. Well, this
0: one seems particularly determined to be super super complicated and confusing. Um, this is kind of a mystery.
1: <laughs> okay, good start.
0: <laughs> the, that um, Basically, three Imperial assassins are sent to kill the head of the eunuch clan. No wait, come back.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> um and they come back and go look we have his seal he's dead and then you go well he may not be they may have just pretended he is so they can keep all his money while he runs away um and then everybody becomes aware that they may actually have not killed him and they start setting them up to die in horrible and complicated ways mm-hmm. um so it's kind of a, a an almost not a not so much a who done it but if they did it but then it actually tells you.
1: Yeah. So what you end up with
0: is this endless cavalcade of characters trying to get them to self-implicate. Yeah. And it's not particularly interesting. And then a, a couple of B-plot characters become A-plot characters. Mm-hmm. It, uh, no, I mean, no, I'm sure Chris would love this. I don't know
1: because even Chris has a has a has a low tolerance for the really completely muddled storylines. Yeah. And here's the thing: I don't think any of the martial arts in this film are enough to excuse just how completely backwards and, and convoluted this plot is. Yeah, I don't think there's anything particularly spectacular about any of the action scenes in this movie that would have me going, well, story, whatever, it's still fun. No, it's not fun. It's a slog. It's an absolute slog to get through, unfortunately. But, you know, if you're a fan of, of Chinese epics, if, if you will watch any and all of them, this, this is, is one of them.
0: And what's worse is, quite often, it actually cuts away from the action sequences. A couple of them. Are actually, oh yeah. Yeah. There's a closing sequence which Ugh. is basically one man versus a bunch of mount- mounted Mongolians, um, and it's actually pretty ineptly edited. I was that. I was like, you're not even giving us that. But yeah, the plot just really seems to want to put it wants to be complicated it wants to be nuanced mm-hmm. but it's complicated with no nuance so yeah. people will appear and go here's my evil plan it's like you're the 15th person who's told me his evil plan i don't really need to know
1: it's a bunch of villain monologues masquerading yeah. as a plot
0: there's a lot of flashbacks yeah, uh, which convince you to try and re- internally rewrite. And you're like, no, we know what really happened. And kind of by this point, we don't care. Yeah, It's, it's not engaging.
1: No, and, and that's all I have to say about it, unfortunately, just because I just can't get into movies like this. It's not that I can't get into Chinese epics. I just I want a, f- a feign and an attempt to tell a story as well as all the spectacle. And I would like the spectacle to actually be spectacular either way. There, well, there's one nice fight sequence in a whorehouse. Well, yeah, when isn't there a good fight in a whorehouse? Good point. Anyway, speaking of, well, no, not at all. Uh, Speaking of Fifty Shades of Grey earlier, uh, we're now going to talk about a documentary called Kink. Kink. Now, if you are at all considering seeing that steaming pile of turds that goes by the name of Fifty Shades of Grey, or even considering reading that awful piece of Twilight fan fiction, oh yes, that's how it started, by the way, uh, upon which the movie is based, don't. Instead, if you really want a glimpse into the world of S&M, watch this documentary. This is actually a really surprisingly fascinating documentary, and I don't just mean cuz there are a lot there's a lot of fucking going on in the documentary. This documentary focuses on a single porn website that's just called kink.com, and they do a lot Not of Not that
0: any of our listeners have ever
1: heard of that. No, I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. Here was the And I'm going to admit this. What's porn? Here's here's the best part that I will totally admit on the air and in full disclosure. As soon as they showed that logo, I was like, "Oh, yeah! I'm from. I know this website. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have seen videos from this website before. Um, but yeah, it's it's very much it's it's bondage, it's BDSM, it's it's very specialized kink videos. Like that's what they make. Um, but what you will find out in the course of this documentary, which is by the way, really honest, like yes. really ridiculously peek behind the curtain, is that." Even in the, in the creation of, of kinky pornography, there is a lot more respect and a lot more genuine connection between people than there is in the movie 50 Shades of Grey, which is my biggest problem with that movie is it's like when you don't have that trust between those people and there's not consent and there aren't limits being, uh, respected, that's not BDSM. That's just rape. And that's what 50 Shades of Grey is, is it's just fucking rape. Whereas kink.com shows how this industry of or at least this website, maybe it's not telling of all websites, I can't speak to you know, as much as I will admit to seeing videos from Kink, I don't know all of the you know, the the fetish S and M websites, so I can't <laughs> I can't attest to how they all run. But what's really interesting about this documentary is you watch people who are filming videos, and beforehand, when they're being interviewed about all of their very specific limits, and those limits—get this—Fifty Shades of Grey are actually respected.
0: And more importantly, there is one sequence where somebody starts shooting a scene, and she's like, nope, this is too much for me." And they go, "Okay, no, we're going to change the, we're going to change the blocking, we're going to change, you know, what the scene's about." It's com- and they completely switch it on and done. Yeah. Because they go, no, 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 no. You have to be comfortable because you know our audience has to be comfortable. It is a really, really fascinating portrait of, a, of an extremely successful business. Yeah. Uh, the opening sequence is actually the, uh, Peter Ackworth, the founder, who is a nice. Public school English gentleman Mm -hmm. going around going yeah 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 well we got this place for a song because it used to be a a national guard armory and then uh, you know the the tech bubble came and you know the firm the firm that was going to turn it into a you know server farm went under and then it was going to be condos and we could just take it over because you know we wanted to look scummy to a certain degree but he's like terribly nice and a lot of it concentrates on both the actors and the directors. And the directors are a fascinating crew. Mm-hmm. They're really interesting because a lot, of, some of them are former formers. Uh, there's there's uh, one of them, Von, uh, uh, Van Dark, who just spends his entire time going, "Is that okay? It, 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 the ropes too? Yo, know, are, are you feeling alright? Yo, know, do you feel good? It's just yo, know, and he's like really like." totally comforting to them he's like a mother hen going around going are you sure you're fine are you sure you're fine now stick the dildo up there Uh, yeah yeah exactly (laughs) it's a really really weird environment yeah but you know uh, this is started by uh, Christina Baras and uh, produced by uh, James Franco James Franco yeah uh, who increasingly I think James Franco is is, should maybe stick to document uh, being a documentary producer because I think that's where he's doing his best work well I
1: feel like in a few years time and I absolutely 100% believe this James Franco is going to be working in the same capacity as somebody like Robert Redford did in the 70s. Yeah. He's going to be the guy that's going out and finding projects and finding performers that nobody else is giving the time a day to. And I'm not I'm not talking about Robert Redford in the sense of he's going to be one of America's great actors. I'm talking about what Robert Redford did for in, independent cinema yeah. in the 70s. You watch, I bet you James Franco will end up doing a very, have a very similar life track.
0: Yeah. And, and and you know, this is it's one of the most fascinating. It, it, it yeah, okay. It is graphic. In There's a lot
1: of you see how the sausage is made, and then what people do to that sausage when it's erect.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, but, what's, but it's <laughs> not much? erotic.
1: No, no. You it's are, very, you, it's very business. You very, are very business.
0: You're not going to crank one out to this. No. Let's put it that way. You will be. It's it's fascinating because it talks about the kind of emotional and in some ways, you know, borderline spiritual experiences of some of the performers. Like, yeah. you know, and, they, and they talk about, you know, the place that the directors are trying to get them to, which is really fascinating. This is a really, really great documentary about a totally unconventional topic.
1: Agreed. I highly recommend it. Instead of seeing Fifty Shades of... Forget about that movie. Um, yeah. So we're going to move on and talk about a movie that I didn't get a chance to see, I will admit. Uh, but I know Richard did. And that was a movie called Vandal.
0: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the review. Thanks for listening. <laughs> well, this is a a um, French movie about a kid who gets sent to stay with his aunt and uncle in a in a small French town because he's a bad kid. And he's like, oh... Yeah, we're going to shoot this in a quasi verite way, and he gets there, and he's so. He, wait,
1: I'm sorry. Is it anything like Hellion then?
0: Yeah, a little bit, but little not as g- not as good. Okay, um, fair enough. But he's he's sent to to hang out with, the, you know, sent the, down there to kind of like get his get his life together before he before he ruins himself as he, as a good young man. Uh, and he goes and hangs out with his cousin, who's the well behaved one. Turns out his cousin isn't the well behaved one. He's part of a graffiti crew <laughs> in this little <laughs> French town. <laughs> Um, who are all mad because there's this one graffiti artist who's doing great work around town uh, called Vandal, who's like, you know, they're kind of like, you know, low-grade taggers. This kid is obviously and purely an artist. Their work is phenomenal. Um, and they keep finding pieces in places like, where did they, how do they even get up there? Like, there's no obvious point of egress. So they're all super impressed, but also pissed at him. They want to find him and kick his ass. Um and it's, I just didn't find this engaging. Hmm. You know, it's supposed to be a portrait of kind of these uh, disaffected youth in, in you know, small town France. It's interesting enough. Mm-hmm. The performances are, you know, very naturalistic. I I just didn't connect with it at any level. Yeah. Um, it gets, an, it has an interesting payoff. Um Whoever the, the the graffiti artist who did Vandal's work, really good, good graffiti artist. You know, you, you kind of look at it and go, there is a, a qualitative difference between their works, mm-hmm. uh, between the, you know, these these kids who just have a couple of spake hands and uh, Vandal as as this true artist. Yeah. So you kind of look at it and going, I wish they talked about that more, but it tends to go off and like go, oh well, he's got a girlfriend and she gets a bit mad at him and then that's it, mm-hmm. uh, unengaging.
1: So when it comes to engaging films about street art uh, as far as vandal goes tag not it.
0: Yes. <laughs> see,
1: see. I it? see what see, you did there. I jean shallotted the fuck out of that.
0: Uh, boom.
1: I ran everything you said to it the jean shallot 5000 <laughs> and <laughs> out that came. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And I know we talked about Rosewater earlier. The next film we're going to talk about is also about, uh, journalism and having journalistic integrity and what it means to, uh, expose things and the consequences of that. And that's a film called Kill the Messenger, uh, starring Jeremy Renner as the, the Sacramento journalist. It is Sacramento, if, if I'm not mistaken, yep. who reveals, who discovered and revealed the link between, uh, Reagan's war in Nor- uh, in, in Nicaragua with the flow of crack cocaine into into America, and so basically what he discovered is that Reagan wanted a war uh, for Nicaragua. The government wasn't going to finance it, so he needed a lot of money to finance the war, so they started making deals with these freedom fighters in Nicaragua to take their drugs and sell freedom them in the who States. Were, who were already drug dealers. Who were already drug dealers, but at least they weren't Russian, so that's why Reagan sided with them. And, I mean, this is something that I think has pretty widely been uh, confirmed oh, at this point in our history, oh, we, something yeah, that actually was, happened. You know,
0: the 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 only argument is degree of culpability, right? Whether the you know, the CIA were actively engaged or whether they just turned a blind eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Webb, the actual journalist who did this investigation, um, you know he said you know he said they they knew what was going on. And they deliberately turned a blind eye to finance this war, right. and the end result was a huge amount of crack coming into coming into the states. Um, and the uh, you know he this is a, an American tragedy, absolutely, because Webb, working for a small a, a small newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, manages to get the jump on everybody else publishes the story it is one of the first stories to go truly viral on the internet right because uh, this is 96 and like you know this exploded nobody nobody saw this as coming uh and the response from the uh, the daily newspapers was to go well who's this guy yeah call their cia contacts and the cia goes no he's making this crap up well of course they're gonna and that's what's um,
1: crazy to me is people bought that they yeah. bought those flat-out lie denials of course the CIA is gonna say that's a lie. What are they gonna say, oh no, he nailed us?
0: Yeah. It's like really are you taking that as proof that Webb is wrong? Uh, and you know, he you know I wouldn't say he cut some corners. He took unconventional routes to get to stuff, like he bribed his way into a prison. Mm-hmm. Uh one of his primary sources was uh a guy called Rick Ross, who was the, the boss. Who was the guy that well a guy that A, Rick Ross, the uh the, the rapper, uh stole his, his name, name from. from. Wow. Uh, <laughs> So much so that Rick Ross actually sued him. Holy shit! <laughs> From prison? Yeah, which <laughs> is not a thing you really want to do because Rick, actual Rick Ross is rather scary because he really was the guy that brought bought crack into into L.A. I mean, this yeah. is a genuinely scary guy, and he just went, "I'm going to turn up at his at his hearing and and try and get whatever information I can." Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Gary Webb is played by uh, Jeremy. Uh, Renner. Jeremy Renner, mm-hmm. who is great in the part, There's Absolutely. this kind of like. Vaguely scruffy, cuts a few corners here and there, kind of journalist. But a guy with all the integrity in the world, moral conscience, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But he kind of comes up against this brick wall of the monolith of main of of really mainstream journalism. Right. Of these people who go, you know, protecting my source is far more important than anything else. Um, and they kind of he gets thrown under the bus, and Gary Webb's career. As a result of one of the most important pieces of journalism of the 1990s, um, you know, and this is you know, public knowledge, this is you know, part of the historical record, uh, it completely destroyed his journalistic career. Uh, he end- It destroyed his marriage, and he finally ended up committing suicide.
1: It's unbelievable. And again, this is a lot like the Internet's Own Boy, uh, where you watch the government take somebody who is just out there trying to share truth and information with people, and squeeze them to the point that they have no recourse but to end their own lives, which is exactly what they want in the first place, its it'll make you physically ill. And it's one of the reasons, watching this movie, that I never like to call myself a journalist. What I do is I interview movie stars, I, I review movies that I like, i am I'm basically just telling you what I think of other people's contributions to society. Yeah. I... I these people are doing a work that just dazzles me. I mean, these people, you know, like Gary Webb, are doing work that is so important that it just makes me feel about two centimeters tall, and I have all the respect in the world for them. And it reminded me, actually, this film reminded me a lot of The Insider. Yeah. Where at one point you have people who just show up and try to take things from Gary Webb's basement. It's like, no, that's my shit. What are you doing here? And the Get actually, out of here. this
0: son downstairs with, with a hockey stick going. With a hockey stick going. If they touch my my crap, hit kill. them. Yeah. You know, it's just. <laughs> I mean, whale on them. Yeah, I mean, this is... this is. Hartford Whale on them. It's a little disappointing that this film didn't get the the press or acclaim that it really deserved. I would agree with I mean, that. Renner is great in this. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead turns up as his editor, who... Tries to protect him, but knows that at the end of the day she can't. Yeah. there's a whole host of like brief cameos by people in this that so you'll just go, "Oh, it's him for five seconds." Oliver oh, Platt. Has Oliver a great Platt role in this. is great as the publisher of, of the newspaper. Yeah, uh, you know who is really going. You know we're. Out of our depth, yeah, this is a story and of course, the irony is that part of the problems that the story faced, that actual editor is the one that created them because he you know had his graphics people draw up some really controversial graphics mm-hmm. um and you have the nighttime news people deliberately misrepresenting what he said in the story, yeah, so he becomes this martyr for other people 's bad reporting, yeah absolutely. because he, you know this argument about well you know he. He didn't do it by absolutely by the book. Well, yeah, but he got the story. Mm-hmm. And people who are doing it by the book are getting it wrong. And, you know, as somebody who will occasionally dare to call themselves a reporter... um this made this film made me legitimately angry Dude, in a way that Rosewater did because Rosewater is almost like, look, good journalism can save the day. It's like no, good journalism can only go so far because at the end of the day, you are fighting against such
1: a no. Forces. I, I got to step in for a second, and I understand that you are a humble person, and that's awesome. But there is no, there is no kind of sort of about it. Like you are, and we say this all the time on this website. You are the most legitimate journalist that we've ever been <laughs> associated with. You have won awards for it, and just the other day, you and I were having a conversation about. Somebody's assistant in the Texas legislator who's going to be stepping down. How long they had been there, and what that really means. And I'm like, you, you are so plugged into what's going on and what's actually important in this town that oh, I'm sorry, I reject entirely. No, the I'm kind of a journalist. No, sure. you are an absolute. You've been talking journalist. to my wife again, haven't you? Because she tells me about this all the time.
0: Anyway, unless I will expect my but check this, in the mail. This is this. This is about you know what what it really costs, and in this case, it it cost a man his career and and um and his life and the ultimately you know gary webb's legacy is that he did some remarkable work mm-hmm. and I, you know if more people are aware of how much he did to make something that we all know now to make it known right because the pieces were there and in fact a lot of the of, of what he um actually came up with was later substantiated because it's an open <laughs> by, court record. Yeah, by, well, also by, by a, a congressional report, which unfortunately came out around the same time as the Whitewater Report, so nobody covered it. Oh, no. Yeah, so he got buried. I mean, this guy, oh, you know, shit. so, you know, I and mean, you really feel this guy who totally got the shitty end of the stick from history. And, you know, like I said, Renner, I think is it's, you know, proof just how good an actor he is because people, I think, look at him in as Hawkeye and in, you know, as... Hansel, in Hansel and Hansel and Witch Hunters, and they go, mm-hmm. "Oh, he's a he's a a good action guy with a good good sense of humor and, Turn- a, and a good one liner." He's legitimately strong in this.
1: Turns out that Hansel is really hot right now. Yeah. Let's talk about the movie that's going to be our giveaway this week, um, which is a movie called In Your Eyes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let me let me just put this out there: not every film we give away is to our taste. No. But that's okay, because yeah. if you guys had the exact same taste as us, I, I, I'm not sure why you would want to live on the same planet if you just have the same taste as everybody else. So, this movie is called In Your Eyes, and it is a film written by a 28-year-old, Joss Whedon. Yeah. So, this was written or back...
0: Or possibly his 14-year-old cousin.
1: Or possibly his 14-year-old cousin. And this is a film that... Okay, so so explain this to me, Richard. Is this a movie they just produced... Because of that, or was this a movie that's been around and is just getting it, uh,
0: sort of found? Because no, this is, they just made this. In fact, it stars uh, Zoe Kazan. True story. Yeah, who is much? Who is you know, we talked about is Oliver, Kitt- uh, Oliver Kittridge. Yeah, and
1: I um, want to see less of her in this movie.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, she plays this girl who has a psychic connection to some other guy uh yeah. he's a piece of rough from new mexico she's a nice posh lady from from uh, new england and when you put them together blah 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 I'm go gonna... fuck yourself <laughs> 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 now yeah you know, it, uh, some people are gonna love this it's a very straightforward simple no real twists or turns uh, you know fantastical love story um you know i mean I I can't throw stones about this because I liked A Winter's Tale. I was oh, the yeah, you can't. Put I those stones only. down.
1: <laughs> Put those stones down immediately, sir. So,
0: so you know, I I have a, a high tolerance for this. See, this is what I'm talking about. Just
1: because we hate this movie doesn't mean that you're going to hate it. Although I will say, I texted Richard uh, while I was ten minutes in and I said, what kind of hallmark fuckery is this? Because the movie really does play out like... Not only in the, in the performances and the goofiness of the story, but in like the overblown lighting, like all the lights are blown out and fuzzy. And it's like, what am I watching here? What the hell is this? And everyone's like speaking an exposition like, well, I'm pretty sure you'll make partner. Well, yes, if I complete that, tra- uh, if I complete that presentation the right way, I'm like, Cool. Uh, I guess nuance didn't come till later in in Whedon's career.
0: I'll say this: if you are looking for something you know light and fluffy that you can watch with some older relatives, boom, this is absolutely it. Because you can still go to yourself. Well, it's Josh Whedon. It does not have any Whedon esque dialogue. No, this is a, not this even is, a little bit. This is very nascent work.
1: There is one line, actually. I will say that if it were delivered by a better actor, may have come across. One, a woman says to a guy in a bar, "I don't want your cooties," and he goes. Oh no! I've actually got the lab work back, and they're benign cooties. Yeah. and if that were delivered by a better actor, it would have maybe had that. Like, I'm, I'm, dude, I'm grasping at straws. Don't look at me like that. I'm doing <laughs> the best I can here, okay? But, but as Richard said, if you have older relatives that you want to watch a movie with, and then when when the movie's over, go and that's the guy that writes all those comic book things that I like, or that's the guy that writes Firefly and Buffy that I'm a really big fan of. Sure, use this movie as the gateway to introduce Grandma to the Avengers. Yeah,
0: that, that, that works.
1: Yeah, so we're going to give this away. We are. Because like I said, even though we don't like it, doesn't mean someone out there won't. You may um, well love it. You may well love you, it. And, you might. And no judgment here. Well, I can't promise that. But uh, here's how you're going to win. You're going to send us a, a tweet. Follow us on Twitter, at One OneOfUsNet. And then send us a tweet with your legitimate, one of your favorite actors. Okay, and then I want you to follow that up with the movie in their catalog that you like them so much that you will sit through. So, preferably somebody who has a very uh, a very extensive catalogue, and you're like, I like this actor so much, I would sit through and then just give me the name of that movie, hashtag that eyes giveaway, we will pick our favourite person, and that person will receive a DVD copy. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah, Or even, not even our favourite person, but the, our favourite answer.
1: Did I say our favourite person? Yeah. I'm sorry, that's not what I meant at all. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, we're playing favourites, and we admit it now. <laughs> we play favourites. Like, anyone, I'm, I'm sorry, anyone who contributes to this giveaway... I am going to be a big fan of because it means you guys are the real fucking digi warriors. Yeah, like no, I want to see that shit. No, seriously, I want some, to see it.
0: Some yeah, you know, and, and honestly, if you are a Josh Whedon completist, you yes. are definitely going to want to watch this exactly, and, and it will show you like not least the difference between good, good Josh Whedon and this.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> even a god can bleed is what you need to take away from this when you watch it.
0: Or at least stub his toe quite hard and go.
1: Ow. Indeed, indeed. So that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week. We're done. Hey, Huzzah. and uh, I want to remind you yet again: we are available on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, D-I-G-I NoiseCast, or at one of us. Or you can follow us individually on Twitter. I am at Braggy Salisbury.
0: I am at Yorkshire TX.
1: And make sure to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash one of us net. Please do use those Amazon links. If you haven't already become a subscriber at any level, definitely consider doing so. We are just we're packing those forum sections with more and more goodies for subscribers at each level. Um, So you're you're definitely going to it's going to be worth your while. And that's what allows us to keep producing content. So thank you very much for that. Uh, But for now, this is Brian, and for Richard, I will end the show the way I always do, reminding you, no release is too big, no release is too small, from Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all.
0: Boy!